0: And Hound
1: podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I'm just back from a week's holiday and trying to catch up with everything that's been happening while I've been off. It's such a busy period of the year. Our interview this week is with Val Sheehan, who's known throughout the showing world for his skill in finding
1: cobs. Real quality cobs are so hard to find. Forget going to the fairs in Ireland, this or whatever, because, I mean, there's 50 people there looking for the same thing. If you want a good cob, you've got to pay for it.
2: We'll look back on all the action from the Hickstead Derby and talk about public perception of horse sport, plus some more of the issues arising from Brexit in the horse world. Finally, Rick Farr from Far & Percy Equine rounds off our series on a vet's life with a few more tales about the quirky side of his job.
3: You do take pride in your work, but your heart absolutely sinks when your patient does something completely and utterly unexpected.
2: So that's enough of me. Give that mane a final brush and let's get started.
4: Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound Guest Interview. I'm Alex Robinson, Showing Editor here at Horse and Hound, and we've got a bit of a showing star here today. I know we're currently engrossed in the in the 2022 show season, but it it's never too early to be looking out for that next star of the future. And with this in mind, on this week's podcast, we're very lucky to be joined by the man who is responsible for finding many, many top show horses we see up and down the country. It's Show cob Specialist, Val Sheehan. Hi Val, how are you?
1: Hello, how are you? Really well, thank you.
4: Super. I'm really well myself. Uh, And Val is a legend within the show horse world. He's known for finding cobs who have won major championships, all the big shows. And in 2021, two horses he found actually took champion and reserve in the Cobb of the Year final at the Horse of the Year show. This was Lisa Davies' Red Butler and Alicia Lehman's Red Rock III, who was formerly owned by Tracy Veal at the time. And Val has competed himself at a really high level and is really the best in the business when it comes to finding those cobs. So Val, just to kick off how's your show season going are you having a successful 2022 so far
1: yeah no i'm having a very nice season um i've only two in to show at the moment um one is audrey as she's known at home um red dove uh, she's a 6 year old cob mare which is quite unusual um she came over as a 2 year old and had everything in the right place um my wife camilla's always wanted a cob mare that's been good enough to go out and. Do the job kind of thing, and Audrey seems to be the one. Uh, she had a very good novice season last year. Um, qualified for horse of the year show, was placed there as a five-year-old. Uh, we did ten shows with her last year. Now this year she's done five shows. She's there thereabouts all the time. Um, she's very prop- She's still very young and very green, and it's a mare. I don't want to push her any. Mm-hmm. Further than she's going at the moment, so she's going to take time. Um, but as I say, I think in time she'll be, you know, she's showing to be special already. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a heavyweight um, novice hunter who is a six-year-old that I hunted quite hardly over the winter, really. Um, and he's had four novice classes this year. He's been placed each time. Um, I'm having great fun. I'm picking the shows I want to do, the shows I like, and you know we're going out and enjoying them. I think that's all anyone can do nowadays.
4: Definitely. And Val, I'm going to take you, take you right back now. How did you get into showing and, you know, specifically into,
1: into show horses? Well, I'm third generation, we say dealer or my, my grandfather, my great grandfather, we've all been into horses, um, buying and selling and doing sort of thing. As a youngster, I mean, my father would take us to the Irish horse fairs. He'd send us out to pick out a nice horse. We would comb through up and down. Um, the quality of horse at a fair in Ireland was much better then. And, um, We'd pick the one we'd like and he would then come and critique and say, oh, no, this is wrong, that's wrong. So we learned very quickly. If we had it wrong, it was kind of almost the whole car journey home was the worst horse you picked kind of thing or the biggest <laughs> fault. So you you kind of more or less bought your learning. Um, I did some amateur show jumping in Ireland, quite enjoyed it. Um, and I had a very nice little bay horse and somebody said, oh, you should do Working Hunter with that. And mm-hmm. so I off I did interview it in Country Limwick show Um and he, we went in the workers, um, jumped an ice clear round, and then we went on and won the class. And I kind of thought, oh, this is much better than show jumping. <laughs> it's kind of two phases. You would jump an ice clear round. I've got a smart horse. Ju- it was all new to me. I mean, I had a borrowed show jacket, borrowed bowler hat. Um, <laughs> and in no time, I kind of said, right, next year, I'm going to do this myself. And I campaigned him actually as a small hunter. And. Um, and did the workers as well within the following season. And I was hooked from there, absolutely. I never show jumped again. Um, <laughs> from there, I kind of went out and like, I you know, I'm quite a tall chap. So a heavyweight hunter was what I did have in Ireland. Um, and I, you know, always had a, a nice heavyweight to show every season, would sell it halfway through the season. Whenever somebody would come along and say, oh, will you sell it? Mm-hmm. Um, in hindsight, if you only knew then what I know now, but I suppose everyone's the same, aren't they? <laughs> Um, of
2: course
1: <laughs> But that was my introduction to showing I mean, once I once I got into it I was addicted um, mm-hmm. I just, you know, every season I hunted, I love my hunting um, Hunt, you know, as many days as I can every season But it gave me something to do in the summer That I really enjoyed And tried to find that nice horse That was good enough to do it and Which is becoming increasingly harder all the time Because there's that much foreign influence in Ireland mm. now That it's, it's hard to find your true Kind of, you know, half-bred or three-quarter-bred Irish hunter
4: Mm-hmm. and when did um, this interest in, in cob stem from do you kind of remember was there a kind of key period in your career when you found the uh, cob- yes
1: well there w- I always had a cob or two at home which were there was a, there was always good you know a nice smart cob kind of thing there was always a market there for it um, an English market and so I always kind of went out on like a draft type cob um, we'd hunted quietly over the winter um, and then sell it kind of early March, April time they all came to the UK but I never had a cob to show in Ireland because they there were only a handful of shows mm-hmm. to to take a cob to. Um, so it was kind of, you know, you did two or three shows. And in Dublin, to me, if you're having a horse, and well, very much so in Ireland, we go Sunday after Sunday and we do the flat class and the workers. And as many classes, the Irish draft class, as many classes you can do in a day. Um, so like, when I moved here, it was probably when, that's when I kind of started, you know, buying and selling the odd cob. Um, then I met my now wife, Camilla, um and she had the very famous cob called So Smart. Mm-hmm. Um, so her passion for cobs was a lot greater than mine. Um, and I started to ride a cob for her called Rock on Robbie and went out, had a bit of fun with it. I kind of thought, oh, I could, you know, this is suiting me. It's, it's interesting. Camilla's interested. Um, so we'll carry on and, you know, keep a cob or two here at home. Um, then. The first kind of cob that I kind of really rode in the ring here was a cob called Monkey Business. It won the heavyweights in Dublin, which was reserve champion, came over here to the UK. And like anything, it was a four year old then and quite bright and needed a lot of work and whatever. It, it, the idea of it being, you know, doing the job was probably harder than, you know, it was a harder cob to ride. Um, but we, somebody phoned us at a show and said, oh, I've got this cob. We went and looked and it turned out it was Monkey Business, the one that had been to Dublin. And. Uh, we brought it home with us. We didn't even pay for it, we brought it straight home. Um and I had it for the I was second at Horse of the Year show the following season on it. We had first and second that year. Um, another Bay cob called Starry Night, which um came from a friend of ours in Ireland called Glenn Knight. I went and saw it in Ireland and phoned Camilla and said, who won Horse of the Year show four times with um So Smart. Um and when I saw Starry Night, or Basil as we called him, I kinda of said, You're going to win Horse of the Year Show again. Um <laughs> and we you know, it just had everything I'd love in a cob kind of thing. It came over and I'm sure she looked at it, you know, hairy Yak and thought, Oh my god, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> but it I mean, it went out um and Sarah rode at the International the first year as a five year old and it was it was it won its class there and was champion. Um uh, it was the year Robert had his um illness, so he rode it at Hearts of the Year show and w- won the heavyweights with it. Um, And I was second on monkey business. So it was, and our son, Harry, was born the same week. So it was a very exciting
0: week here (laughs) at Hall.
1: a busy time. But that was my first kind of riding cobs and kind of thinking, yeah, I know. Again, like any show horse, you know, a cob or anything, it has to be true to type. It has to be correct. It has to have the proper way of going for the animal, do you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So that that was my kind of, you know, when I started showing cobs.
4: So Val, you've mentioned a few a few superstars there, including um, Starry Night, who was ridden by both Robert and Sarah Walker. And you found so many top show horses over the years. But are there any favourites who stick in your mind who you could just uh, recall for us,
1: please? Favourites in my in my mind. Well, I, I I mean I have to say I suppose Monkey Business. I mean he was very difficult to meet, but he was second horse of the year. He was second to the international for me. I had great fun on him. Um, I did him here from home and, um. Yeah, he was probably one of the, he was true Mm -hmm. quality heavyweight cop, quality limb, um, you know, everything. He was deep and typey and you you Mm -hmm. don't see them anymore. Um, And the other one I suppose, which would stand out big time for me, was a cop that I found on Facebook advertised with a dealer in um, Bath, was a coloured cop called um, Boris for short. Um, He was a Mm -hmm. six-year-old hunting cop, um, had never been in the show ring. Um, But at the time, for me, he was a you know, a very nice cop to find. He was, you know, the deal was when he arrived here, if I could ride him around the block, I was going to keep him. Um, Mm -hmm. Now taking into account that was after I'd lost my leg and I kind of had no notion of riding in the ring again. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, Shorty came along and like we went to Windsor and did the novices there and we were second out of 28. um, Did his first horse of the air show and qualified. And I, you know, was, I think we were, um, four just horse of the Year show, a third at the Riding Show. We, I, you know, we had, he is one mm. that kind of did an awful lot for me mentally and physically and everything. He said, yeah, I can go out and ride in the ring with everybody else. So he is a very important one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still out on the circuit and still doing, but, you know, he's one of the ones that kind of, you know, I, I smile when I think of him. He, mm-hmm. you know, he kept me riding in the ring. He opened an awful lot, of, you know, made me realise actually one leg or two legs, you can go out and do this.
4: Yes, of course. And um, for those who, who don't know, Val lost part of his leg in a, in a hunting accident um, a few years ago. But as you say, that that hasn't stopped you showing. Yeah. So Val, I'm not sure whether this is a bit of a, a secret, but where are you finding these cobs? And is there any advice for people out there who, who might be on the hunt for their next superstar?
1: I, it's so difficult nowadays. I mean, real quality cobs are so hard to find. Um mm. Like, forget going to the fairs in Ireland, this or whatever, because, I mean, there's 50 people there looking for the same thing. Um, they're just really, I think you really, if, if you want a good cub, number one, you've got to pay for it. Number two, you go to the people, you know, I have people in Ireland that I buy cobs off of all the time. They find cobs for me. They phone myself, well, I've got a cub for you. Mm. And I'll have it regardless, whether it's a superstar or not, I'll have it because I know it'll have all the attributes that they know I like, which is, you know, quality limb. It'll be deep and typey and you know, it'll have everything. It might not be a superstar. I mean, the superstars to me, they're all kind of very good, correct type cobs. The superstars are who produces them and puts the work into them and the homes Mm -hmm. they have. Because if you can have the best cob in the world and if it doesn't want to do the job, it won't do the job. Mm -hmm. Or if they don't produce it or put the work into it properly, well, then it's not going to do the job either, is it? So, you know, I've had some lovely cobs over the years disappear um, because they just maybe went to the wrong home or. For some reason, they were a bit hardier than what they should have been. They weren't mm-hmm. as easy as, as people think. Um, so there's no, I mean, going, I think the best way to find a cob nowadays really is to kind of phone the cob people, the people who have the contacts and say, look, mm. I want a cop and I want a good cob. I want to go to horse. Be realistic about your you know, what you want to do. I want to go to Horse of the Air show, or I want to, I mean, going to Horse of the Air show in a cob is one thing, but the cob predominantly that wins Horse of the Air is something that might need a couple of hours working in before you go in the ring. Is that what you want to do every time you go out? Do you know? So you have to kind of be realistic about it. Um, But I think at this stage now, the best way to buy any cob is to kind of, the people that, you know, provide or have provided show cobs that will know a show cob, go to them, spend your money wisely and at least you're not putting years of working something that's not good enough because i you know it seems to be happening all the time now where so people are they think they're finding a cob themselves and three seasons later which is a lot of money a lot Mm -hmm. of entries a lot of diesel waste a lot of schooling a lot of effort to actually realize it's it's not good enough you know. Mm
4: -hmm. yeah so what are some of these elements that make a a cob good enough you know you might have gone to see your future cob and it's in the raw, it's rough with lots of hair. What are some of those key aspects that people should be, you know, looking through to, to, you know, see that potential?
1: Well, for me, I mean, limb, quality of limb is probably the most important thing. I mean, I like to look down first and see below the knee, nice, short, cannon of bone, flat bone, not, not a traditional cob trimmed out. Um, to me, it shouldn't have, you know, a little bit of feather at the heel. Um, but like a quality limb, um, a good good knee it and a good forearm, good second type, but it should mm-hmm. be low to the ground. I mean, I always look at a cob and think it should be, you know, 60 body, 40 leg. It's a horse on mm-hmm. short legs, not a big pony or like that's what I'd be looking for. And I think if people are going out to look for something, that's very much so. It should be a small horse rather than... Right you know, are, again, like a small, a shrunken down heavyweight hunter, in my ideas, is your perfect mm-hmm. cub. Do you know what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. that. you know, it should stand over ground. It should be very deep. It should be, you know, it should have correct limbs in it. I mean, nowadays there's, I think, quite a lot of more of a common influence in, in the cobs, which people say is old-fashioned. And it's not. If you go back and look at the, the old-fashioned cob was full of quality and had lovely flat limb and that kind of things. But it's kind of, you know, Nowadays, they kind of, when people see the cobs with maybe slightly rounder bone and, you know, a more of a common influence in them, mm-hmm. people say, oh, it's an old-fashioned pattern. And it's not. The old-fashioned cob was full of quality. The old-fashioned lightweight cob had a bit of blood in it. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. never, a, it was, they were never plain or common sort of thing. And I just, that really, it worries me quite a lot. Because, I mean, when I look at, like, the novice cobs, even at the moment, I think, God almighty, it's like... You know, you're married to the clippers, they're almost traditional cobs clipped out. Um, I know they're hard to find and the real quality ones, but like I think, you know, these these we'd say commoner, coarser type limbed cobs are being rewarded because they move well or they've been produced well, or they have an amazing turn of front. But it's got to have quality limb because if that limb isn't there as a youngster, that quality, by the time it's seven or eight or ten, that limb has gone so coarse that it's not going to be there anyway. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So As I say, it's becoming harder and harder to find that quality cop. But I think if you have one, you know, that type should be rewarded. And going down that route, then I I would have said like for for type and confirmation, one should be looking at 60 marks and 40 for for the ride. Because you can improve a ride, but if it's not a proper type, it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be. I mean, it almost kind of saddens me when a judge gets off something. So, oh, it's given me amazing ride. It's lovely. And it's, you know. Like it's the one I want to take home, and then you look at its limbs and stuff, and you think, "But it's not a cob; it's coarse, it's common." Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it might be schooled into giving a gorgeous ride, but it's not a it's not uh, you know. I think right across the board, show horses in general, type is kind of slightly going out the window, so they need to start maybe looking at them. No, not I mean it should give a nice ride, but it shouldn't be the most important factor. It
5: yeah, the,
1: it's the animal itself should be the informed, The cob itself should be quality. It should have. It should have movement. It should be something you could sit on all day. Um, it should you know, be light across the ground. It should, you know, not produced into something that looks the part. But actually, it should be naturally there. Do you know?
4: Mm-hmm. And just looking at the the cob market now, Val, obviously during the pandemic prices rose for horses and um, they were staggering across the board. But what's the market like for cobs at the moment and what kind of cobs are people tending to, you know, be looking for? Is it that safe, happy hacker cob or are are people still out there looking for those show horses?
1: I think like the people that have money always have money. The people that want to win will always find the money sort of thing. Uh, they might do lesser, you know, a less amount of shows, but they actually will still want to buy, you know, something that's going to win. And they will spend the money for that kind of thing because we've all bought our learning over the years and you've kind of produced and put a lot of time into something that's just not quite good enough. And you think, well, mm-hmm. I'll have to up my game and spend a bit more or buy something slightly better or um, the market. I mean, I, you know, I try to stick to anything that's good enough to go into the ring, let us be a heavyweight show hunter or, a, you know, a cob or a small hunter or an intermediate or like it needs to be good enough to go in the ring for me yeah. and if i you know if somebody phones me up i'll say you know this will you know it is a horse of the year show it is I, you know there's no point in looking through rose tinted glasses it mm-hmm. it is what it is and i'll tell you before you come to look at it this is what i change i can't change it um it'll improve at work or whatever the case may be but like i do think you know in one sense, it's probably a good thing. The value of, of cobs or, or show horses has come up a bit mm. that you have to pay for them because, like, for, for quite a while, I mean, the breeders are people that have cobs in Ireland. Like, they keep them for three, four years and then people expect to get them for five grand, do you know what I mean, mm. or less. And you think, how can you do it? Breed it, keep the mare or whatever. I mean, they whinge all the time and say, oh, it came from Ireland, as poor as a crow and this and whatever. But you paid peanuts for it. How do you expect it to be warmed and vaccinated and everything for for, for no money, do you know what I mean so i I think probably your happy hacker market that the price of those have come up quite a lot mm-hmm. um and people are kind of maybe their values have changed and they're kind of are riding more of that kind of thing but I think it's probably a good thing for me anyway I mean, I'd look anything I would sell you know that it goes into a proper home would be more important than the price of it um because that's the future of it, isn't it i mean if you if you place it like, there are people who would phone me to buy something. And if, I, if they gave me double the price or triple the price, I wouldn't sell it to them because it's the wrong home.
4: Mm. Well, thanks, Val. There's some great food of thought there for, for our listeners. And I'm sure um, loads of takeaway tips that people are going to be, you know, implementing when they're looking out for their next cob. So thanks, Val. Just to finish, where, where are you heading next with your, with your horses? And where can we see you out?
1: Uh, we are off to Norfolk. And then from there, Kent County possibly TSR um, and then we're on to the Royal International um, August is a quiet one for us um, we kind of do maybe one show early August then kind of plan Dublin horse show stuff like that and then we're a few later in the season we'd say we do Edenbridge and Oxted, Bucks County and then it's the championships the Hatton Cobb Championships and possibly horse of the year show that's the plan for the rest of the season
4: It's all coming around very quickly. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
4: (laughs) Super. Thank you for your time, Val. You're very welcome. Bye-bye.
6: Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and to talk about the welcome return of the Al-Shirah Hickstead Derby meeting and Shane Breen's epic victory on Sunday, I've been joined by my colleague, Eleanor Jones, who was one of our team of reporters down at Hickstead last week. El, what a brilliant week it was, how good does it feel to have the Derby
7: back again? (laughs) oh wasn't it brilliant first one for three years and and it was standing room only wasn't it it was just everyone was so pleased to be there and to be back and yeah just a fab fab day and a fab meeting
6: it was good. And the sun shined as well. And I think just having the crowd back, I think everyone just appreciated it. The noise and the, the level of appreciation and people stayed behind, didn't they? It was just, uh, they just wanted to be part of it again. And it was a good feeling. Loved it. Um, and we have to start by talking about Shane Breen's brilliant ride. He won with the only clear round of the class, which in itself is a fantastic achievement. But it's, it was long awaited, shall we say it was copybook, but long awaited. Um, it's been he's been trying to win it for about 20 years and uh, <laughs> to finally do it I think the emotion told he was he was full of emotion but it it obviously meant so much to him didn't it
7: it really did, didn't it? And he has come so close, you know, uh, in other years. And he said that people sort of all week have been saying, this year is going to be your year. And he was saying, well, it's been my year for the yeah. last 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's it. And he said he, he said he used to think that when he was 80, he'd still be coming down with a Zimmer frame and taking an old <laughs> horse round. And he said, I yeah. won't have to do that now.
6: <laughs> I love that because even on the this podcast we had Trevor Breed on and he said you know he, he quite likes taking the mickey out of his brother for not having won it Shane having <laughs> I mean Trevor having won it twice but um yeah he said you know at, at some point it's got to be his turn and I it's funny that I felt like it was going to be Shane's turn everyone seemed to have had that feeling this year but um for, for poor yeah. Shane he must get it every single year year oh, oh and it'll what, be your the turn pressure next. yeah the yeah.
7: pressure that must put on but he also said didn't he that uh, at some shows previously when Trevor's won people have come up to him at shows and said oh well done on your derby when he's been like oh, yes. yeah, thanks <laughs>
6: <laughs> taking the credit for his brother <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Um and that horse as well. I mean we have to say as well he finished second as well on Golden Hawk with four falls and one with Kanye McCann who's a brilliant stallion but um he said he was riding around there with those two horses it was just like sitting on two comfy armchairs. He must have had the most amazing feeling right there and he made yeah. it look effortless but um yeah he's he's one of these combinations you you can sit and watch him go round this amazing course which you know is renowned the world over for being so difficult, but he just every single fence you look at him like he's riding it perfectly he's yeah. absolute masterclass, class
7: isn't he no oh, he's such a legend and when you think that his clear on Kenya makan was only the 65th clear in 60 years of that <gasps> class <laughs> exactly it's just i mean such an achievement for anyone to get round that course but yeah yeah hats yeah. off to him
6: brilliant um and i mentioned his second place there were actually four riders who finished with four faults for equal second one of whom was harriet biddick with the 80 year old a touch in and I, she takes it so well every year. She's very sporting about the whole thing, but she must be sick of being second again and again. It's just uh, you forget. I mean, it's a brilliant achievement, but to to come oh, close so many times for her, she's uh, yeah, she's brilliant yeah. to
7: watch as well. Oh, and they are also just absolute masterclasses of that course and they've, they've come second five times and come third twice. Yeah. And, and what must be so gutting as well is that, it, you know, it was just a foot in the water that she, he actually, he cleared everything other than that and it was a foot in the water yep three years ago that um in the jump off that denied them the win so oh they 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 just I really really hope that um Henry as the horse is known will will be okay for another attempt attempt next year and, and she said you know the way he felt on Sunday he feels as good as ever and if he feels still like that next year then then that's what she'll be aiming for
6: Brilliant, and um, fingers crossed, we'll we'll see all these great combinations back again next year. And um, but it was a great week for Harriet. Actually, not only did she finish first equal with William Funnel in Friday's Derby Trial, but she won the Speed Derby for the third time with this, another sort of veteran, seventeen-year-old Silver Lift. It was a brilliant performance, and uh, there are so many of these combinations that just seem to love it round Hickstead. They just come alive round Hickstead. They're real core specialists, aren't they?
7: Yeah, oh, there's something about that ring, isn't there? And that, that speed derby is just so special. But yeah, for them, Harriet and Silver Lift, who have won three times and come second place three times. I yeah. mean, that, that just that just shows their consistency, doesn't it?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I think she, she came in from final draw and it was a brilliant performance. But I think he's one of those horses that, like, if I was ever, not that I'm going to, if I was ever <laughs> going to ride around the Hickstead, course he just looks like the absolute dream he just he takes it in a stride he just looks absolutely brilliant a real fun one to ride doesn't he yeah and just that he's
7: just enjoying his job so much which is so lovely to see
6: definitely um and Al, you were busy on sunday speaking to lots of the uh, derby riders after they finished their rounds what were some of your other standout performances from sunday's class
7: yeah, it was actually really, really nice to have the chance to, because as we said earlier, you know, just completing that course is such a huge achievement. So it was really nice to speak to some of the people that maybe weren't, you know, on the podium, but but had done what they'd done. And we spoke to, I spoke to William Whittaker, who <laughs> completed the class on a catch ride that he'd only sat on for the first time, uh, tw- like 24 hours beforehand. It's amazing. <laughs> and this is um Elliot Smith's podcast. Uh, mother's horse, Vicky, uh, called Flamboyant, who had qualified for the Derby trial, finished in 13th place in that, but as, you know, after he'd crossed the finish line, his rider Elliot fell off and managed to break his femur in three places so he had oh, a rod gosh. put through it. I'd be mean, just beyond belief and, and his mum, Vicky, told me that he's in amazing spirits and, and watching from hospital and apparently... Yeah, doctor... and he was trying to come, wasn't he? He wanted to come to the, yeah, <laughs> the, the Derby. The doctor said, have you got any questions? He said, would it be all right if I went and watched my horse today? And the doctor went, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> bless him. So, I hope he recovers soon. But, yeah, William just got straight. And that. and that's a measure of William's class and quality, isn't it? That he can get on a horse for the first time and and pop it round the derby. And he, he had three three down, which actually was unlucky to have, you know. Yeah. Jumped a fab round.
6: Absolutely amazing and, it's, and there must be something about the Whittaker jeans because John Whittaker <laughs> very obviously is famous for his catch ride with um, Buddy Bun that year when he won it so um, yeah it's obviously something they're very good at and I don't <laughs> think I'd ever like to go round on a new horse round the Hickstead Derby but they make it look very good yeah. very easy any others that sort of stood out for you?
7: Yeah, actually, one thing that stood out was a lot of these people I spoke to, their horses were huge. They were all sort of, you know, 17, three, uh, 18 hands. And, and we spoke oh, to, yeah. I spoke to Adam Botham, who was riding a, a horse called Dublon, who is also 18 hands. And I said, you know, what does it feel like when you're on top of the bank for the first time? And he said, well, it's a long way down. And when the horse is 18 hands, it's even longer. Oh. Um, <laughs> but they, they had a great round and he's sure that horse will jump clear one day. I mean, just just fantastic to what also what it means to people, to, you know, that I also spoke to Morgan Shirley, who uh, was riding a horse owned by the Brendan Stud, called Envoy oh, yeah. Merrill's Nest. And uh, she said it was all a bit of a blur, but she she said Shirley, like the owner, had always said this horse will jump the derby and, and you'll do it on him. And she said, I never believed her. But this is a dream come true.
6: It's amazing. Yeah, it's that kind of emotion, isn't it? It yeah. means, I mean, just to get there with a horse that you think can do it and to get round is such a big achievement. So um, yeah, hats off to all these guys for for doing it and uh, doing it so well. Um, I think uh, you mentioned Dublin, I think he gets the prize for one of the best descents of the Derby Bank. He literally (laughs) just came down on his backside, didn't he? I've never seen anything like it. (laughs) Yeah, just popped down, popped the fence. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it was brilliant. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Al, thank you. I think we can all agree it's been brilliant to have um, the Al Shirai Hickstead Derby back again and with a brilliant crowd in attendance. So uh, I think a lot to look back on and a lot to enjoy. So thank you. Back to you,
2: Pippa. Well, thank you to Jen and Eleanor there for running us through all the Hickster Derby action. I have Eleanor still here with me in her news editor capacity. It sounds like you did have a great show and a great week last week, Eleanor.
7: Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, I was only there for Derby Day, but it was it was honestly standing room only round the ring. Everyone seemed so pleased to be back. And yeah, it was brilliant to be
2: back at Hickster at its best. Oh, that's so good. And we also have with us the other two members of our news team, our two senior news writers, Lucy Elder, how are you doing?
0: I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I've been at a wedding this weekend. Love weddings. Um, I feel like this summer has been weddings weddings and horses, which is, you know, a great mix, <laughs> if you ask me. How about you?
2: Definitely, yes, all good with me. I was on holiday last week, so uh, missed, missed out on the podcast. I actually listened to the podcast while I was running over the weekend, so it was quite nice to listen to you all as a punter for once. So, uh, but yes, had a great holiday down in Cornwall with family and a puppy, so a good combination. <laughs> And we also have with us Becky Murray. How are you doing, Becky?
5: I'm good. Thank you. I was also off last week. So got some sunshine and went camping. And I have also been reporting on the show jumping at the Royal Highland. So that was really exciting and so nice to see a big crowd in the main arena again. Oh, yeah, I bet that's a really lovely show. Is it one of the sort of old fashioned county shows I imagine? yes and do you know it's just got such a buzzy atmosphere everyone's always so pleased to be there there's so much going on and yeah i mean sort of watching the grand prix in the main arena the crowds just get involved and it's just really wonderful to be there
2: Oh, great. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your report on that in the magazine this week. There's so much going on, but you did find time, all of you, to write some normal news last week as well, which we're going to talk about now. And um, Eleanor, you were following a big story about the public's perception of horse sport. It was sort of following on from a survey. Can you just tell us a bit about the survey and the headlines of what came out of it?
7: Yeah, so, so this survey was carried out because World Horse Welfare said, you know, they and we have been talking about the uh, public perception of horse sport for a long time and they wanted some evidence base, you know, to find out what the public really do think of horse sport. So they carried out, they commissioned this survey, sorry, which was carried out by YouGov and the key findings were that 40% Respondents only supported continued involvement of horses in sport if their welfare is improved. 60% said there should be more safety and welfare measures in horse sport, and 20%, so one in five people, don't support continued involvement of horses in sport under any circumstances.
2: Mm, quite shocking numbers, I think mm. there. And that survey was followed by a debate hosted by World Horse Welfare. Um, and Roly Owers, who's the CEO of that organisation, obviously had a lot to say. What, what were, what were his main points?
7: I think the biggest the biggest two points are one that what they came out with should be a wake up call, an alarm call to every single person involved in horse sport at any level, um, that we as an industry, as a, as a group of people aren't as trusted with horse welfare as we need to be to maintain public support. Um, he, he said the, the results reflect the reality of the UK public perception of, of horse sport. And the other big issue is that we all of us have to work together to, to overcome this massive challenge and make sure we we still have got horse sport in future. And um, because I think uh, some of the some of the comments on our social media were that, you know, it almost, well, we know we're all right. And it doesn't matter what these people think. And it's just without public support and public acceptance that involving horses in sport is OK, we won't be able to.
2: Mm-hmm. So pretty serious implications mm. there. Give us a bit of a flavour of the other views that came out in that debate. There were a lot of, you know, good personalities there with with some interesting points to make.
5: Yeah,
7: so on the panel was, was Pepper Funnel, obviously who everyone knows. There was Madeline Campbell, who is a senior lecturer in, in human-animal interactions and ethics, and she's also a breeder and a rider and owner herself, so she can see it from all perspectives. There were people from polo and racing and uh, Christian Landolt, who's a dressage and eventing rider and trainer and an FEI official. And um, some, some of the thoughts were that Christian actually said he wasn't survived by the survey results and that it's it's important to have consistent reminders for everyone in the sport uh, of welfare standards uh, and he pointed out that with social media uh, being as much of a thing as it is bad news travels so fast and his big belief was that there needs to be more education on, you know, what's best for, for horses. Um, Pepper came up with some good ideas, such as maybe at competitions, there could be some some leading and respected riders who maybe had an armband on and that they could be approached for advice and that they would also then be in a position to say, well, maybe what you did wasn't quite in the right interests of the horse and and all about education and communication, really.
2: Mm. And finally, what did Rowley say about world horse? What world horse welfare will be doing next to sort of follow up on this work?
7: So he said they are they are going to follow up on this research. You know, this isn't the end of it. And um, he said that all of us should make three commitments, which are challenge ourselves all the time on what whether we can do more to prioritise uh, our horses' welfare, to review current practices in sports, and work together to make improvements to directly benefit horse welfare, and also to And this is something we can all do is promote the benefits of the horse human partnership and the benefits that there are to the horse from that partnership, because there can be some perception that that isn't a positive benefit for the horse. But I think everyone there and and I think we all do agree that the horses do benefit from it and we have to celebrate that and, and tell everyone about it.
2: Mm. Well, thank you very much, Eleanor. Lots of interesting stuff coming out of that. Lucy, you've been looking into a new cost for people who deal in horses from Europe, which has just come to light, I think, this week, although maybe it has been rumbling around for a while, which is part of the story. What's this all about?
0: Yes, like you said, Pepper. this is a kind of all of Brexit and what Brexit means in different parts of business comes to light. This is one which we've been looking at Focusing on this week, actually Hazelwoods, which is a business advisors and charters accountants, uh, flagged this to us. And it's really, it's kind of one of the unintended consequences of Brexit, if you like. And it affects those who import horses from EU nations to sell on. And crucially, those of those who use the secondhand margin scheme. Now, not everyone does use that, but those businesses that do will know who they are. And it's specifically for that side of those, the business. you know, for the selling on horses that they've imported from EU nations and so essentially the second-hand margin scheme provides VAT relief to businesses that buy second-hand goods such as horses from non-registered members of the public where there's no VAT incurred so there's no tax to recover there. It's quite technical, um, but essentially it is going to mean an increase in cost um, and a condition really of using the margin scheme has always been that the goods must have been obtained via a supply in which no VAT was chargeable. Now before Brexit this was fine, but what's happened since then is that VAT is now levied on arrival in the UK, which means that it's no longer a VAT free supply chain. So the second hand margin scheme effective- effectively doesn't apply in those instances and it is potentially going to be putting up costs and um, squeezing on profit margins for those involved.
2: And Tim Warren who's been importing horses from Europe for about 30 years, he gave some real figures about how this might play out. Could you run us through those Lucy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. As an example, he said that if a UK dealer bought a horse in Europe pre-Brexit for, say, £15,000 and sold it in the UK for £20,000, there'd be VAT to account for on the margin, which would come to around sort of eight hundred and thirty or quid, um, leaving the dealer with a profit of about just over £4,100 4, before other costs. But post Brexit, dealers have to account for VAT on the full sale price of £20,000, which then increases the VAT to over £3,300, which leaves the dealer with a profit of around £1,600. So as you can see, there's quite a big difference there. Mm, and not really probably any profit at all once you take mm. other costs into
2: account. Quite. Thanks, Lucy. This sounds like quite a a serious one for uh, people in that in that business. Becky, you have also been looking at a Brexit story this week. Sorry, listeners, it's a Brexit double. Um, And this is one is about passports for Irish bred horses. It's something I've been seeing a bit about on social media. So it's good that we're getting a bit of clarity. But can you explain what the confusion is or has been and what has now been decided or, or come out for people about passports for Irish horses?
5: Okay, so before Brexit, if you had an Irish horse here in the UK and you needed to make a change to its passport, such as change of ownership, you would simply send the passport to the appropriate Irish passport issuing organisation, whether that might be Horse Sport Ireland, for example, or one of the others. Now, this stopped earlier this year and owners have essentially been left in limbo while DEFRA and Ireland's equivalent have tried to come to some kind of agreement. Now, we've sort of discussed studbook issues that came out of Brexit previously in the magazine, and one of the key things was that different countries had to apply to DEFRA for an extension of breeding territory to keep operating various stud here in the UK. And that requirement includes the Republic of Ireland. And now, just this month, guidance has finally been issued about the passport situation. The good news is that all Irish passport issuing organisations can still process some updates, including the change of ownership and microchip updates now.
2: But there are some some things that those Republic of Ireland PIOs now can't do, aren't there Becky?
5: Yes. So the trouble is, only one Irish stud book received the extension of breeding territory from Defra, and that was the Kerry Bog Pony Cooperative Society. So the various sport horse stud books from Ireland were not approved. Now this means Horse Sport Ireland, for example, can no longer issue a new or duplicate passport horses in the UK. So even if you have a horse for Ireland passport already and you lose it, a duplicate cannot be provided. Mm, okay, so that sounds tricky.
2: And we don't know who can provide those duplicate passports. That's right at the moment.
5: That's right. I have asked the question, um, but nobody has an answer for this yet. So I'm sort of waiting to see if more guidance comes out in the future on this.
2: Okay, well, hold on to your passports, people, because uh, it sounds like it's going to be tricky to get another one. Let's try not to lose them if you've got an Irish bred horse. Thank you very much, Becky, and thank you to Lucy and Eleanor for your updates, too. So now it's time for our vet section. Over to you, Rick.
3: Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Far and Percy Equine, and we're going to round off this little mini-series of uh, It Could Only Happen to a Vet, just with a few little extras, a few little last stories and all sorts that's, uh, that I've kind of picked up and um, and experienced over the years. So I think it's, it's one of those things about uh, what clients don't see, what goes on in the background. And I'm going to probably just hop from random subject to random subject on this one but um, working pretty long hours I've got to admit uh, most vets out there are incredibly good at sleeping I mean we don't get that much time to sleep to be honest because we're always out on call or doing things and your phone's going off but the advantage of having a power nap I quite regularly I must admit particularly when I've been on call for a few days uh, pulling over to random lay-bys and having a 10 minute power nap. I mean, I can drink coffee like the best of them, but it just doesn't cut it like a power nap does. When my head hits the pillow, that's it, boom, I'm out. But I can also do that very randomly on desks. Um, I remember sleeping at reception while you're waiting for patients to come in, grabbing those extra 10, 15 minutes here, there, and everywhere, Um, and particularly as a parent as well, everyone knows what it's like with kids. Uh, Combine that with our day-to-day life and um, power naps, genuinely, the way forward, um, having them all, all, absolutely all the time. Um, But it becomes more embarrassing when you try to do that with a student in the car. Uh, uh, Part and parcel of of doing our course, you have to do something called EMS or extramural studies, where you spend time out in practice with other vets. Um, Really difficult to get power naps or to get any kind of peace. Kind of when you've got a student because you have to teach them you have to ask them questions and all sorts but but i did learn a little trick off my previous boss of when you don't have quite as good of a student because sometimes they're very small animal based and they don't want to come out and see a lot of equine work so they, although they're interested there's probably not that engagement there i've looked, worked out the, the the perfect way to uh, to get any student um, and also my kids as well. Any student to um, kind of give you a little bit of peace is wait until just after lunchtime. Make sure they're well fed. Pull all the windows up in the car. Turn the heating up slightly and turn the radio down. Absolutely works a dream. Um, so yeah. Um, but I thought I'd, I'd kind of end up on um, calls that you go out to. And it, again, it's although it's not completely equine related, this is a cow one. But again, it's the the classical kind of vet. Out with a cow caesar and how life can be so unpredictable for you cow caesarians uh they are fun to do um they're very very rewarding and you take a lot of pride in your work and i remember doing i probably only qualified three or four years doing this uh, cow caesarian uh, I'd, I'd done another one prior to that actually so this was my second one of the day anyway doing this caesar calf out no problems and you do take pride in your work and you do take pride in it all being clean but your heart absolutely sinks when your patient does something completely and utterly unexpected that manages to scupper all of your hard work Caesars, they're not quick so half an hour 40 minutes into it just about to sew the side of this cow up and get it all clean it suddenly decides that it wants to lay down But it doesn't want to lay down with the open side of its abdomen up towards the sky. It wants to lay down with its open side of its abdomen down towards the ground, all in straw. If you've ever tried to get a cow up that wants to lay down, it's near on impossible. And I remember, literally, I was so proud of this Caesar. It had gone like clockwork. This cow just dumped itself down and rolled completely over into the straw. Straw, poo, muck everything into the side of this cow completely open we managed to get it up and i just look at it and uh, your heart sinks you're thinking how on earth am i going to clean this up this is near on impossible and if you've wow. done this to a horse that horse would guarantee you get peritonitis and unfortunately i think the chance of that surviving will be quite simple cows are like superhumans they will recover from anything and i remember ringing up my boss at the time saying I have no idea what to do and everything. And when you're when you're first qualified, you do rely upon a lot of your senior clinicians to help you. And I stood there. He just turned around to me and said, right, go and get the hose. Genuinely, you'd never think it would ever work. I stood there for about 10 minutes with a hose in the side of a cow, draining. I don't know how much water through it, spraying it around like you're watering your lawn or your garden inside this cow and it's all coming out and gushing out and my boss is like genuinely stand there flush it all out stick some antibiotics in there stitch up it'll be absolutely fine and that cow was these are the sort of things that you prepare you don't prepare for you prepare on the basis that you want to get the cesarean done but life as a vet throws spanners into your works all the time but i hope you've enjoyed this little mini series thank you very much
2: Thank you, Rick, and a big thank you to Rick and the other vet who joined him on some of our recent podcasts, Andy Fisk Jackson from the Royal Veterinary College. Rick and Andy have kept us really well entertained over the past seven weeks with all of their stories. Next week, we'll be moving to a new mini-series with Farrier Sam Draycott. Plus, I'll be chatting to the new National Under-25 eventing champion, Greta Mason. The Horse and Ham podcast is growing all the time. Episode 87, which included our interview with Harry Charles, has recently become the first episode to reach 10,000 downloads. So do go back and give that one a listen if you haven't already, as well as lots of other great interviews and chats in our back catalogue. Talk to you next week. Goodbye. The Horse and Ham podcast is a media cage production.